When should you start forming a relationship with a private bank? I have a special guest in my studio today. In today's episode of Dental to Rental, we explore this question and the impact it has not only on your dental practice, but also your residential real estate investing journey. Welcome back to Dental to Rental, where we move you from cavities to cash flow. I'm your host, Mark Brower. So glad to be here in the studio today with my friend, Evan Ray. Evan Ray has experience in banking. He has experience working with dentists, has experience as a landlord himself, and has worked with lots of property managers. Evan, welcome to the studio. It's great to be here, Mark. Thank you and welcome everyone. Yeah. Evan, let's start with some introductions. I gave some high points about how you kind of intersect with the goals and the experience of our listeners, uh, but share a little bit about yourself and, and uh, how we got to know each other and, and how you intersect with this world. Sure. Um, well, I, my, I guess professionally, I grew up here and went to ASU, graduated with a degree in finance. I liked business and eventually made my way into banking and did a lot of real estate financing, initially construction financing. And so I've been financing for most of my career for a um, long, long time. And most recently I have transitioned this year um, out of banking and into a business brokerage opportunity that presented itself with the Menlo Group. The Menlo Group specializes, highly specialized in dental practice sales. Uh, well-known in the Arizona market, a little bit of the uh, California market, and they needed someone with a broad range of business uh, background to help in all their other business-related um, opportunities, business sale opportunities. So I, I, I'm i with part of the dental team, but I'm focused on, on businesses that uh, other business opportunities, medical practices, manufacturing companies, window companies, property management companies, all kinds of different uh, opportunities that are out there in the market nationwide. And I've been a property owner for a long, long time. I kind of got the bug from my grandpa. My grandpa, uh, I always looked at him as kind of one of my my heroes. And he was a builder, construction guy. But in, in addition to his regular construction job, he ended up owning a bunch of real estate rental properties, a bunch of uh, apartments. And he probably owned 40, 50 apartments at the end of his life and his career that he used to um, kind of provide cash flow for himself as he um, finished out the last 20, 30 years of his life. And so I always had in the back of my mind, man, my grandpa really did well with rental income. It was always steady and he, she seemed to have the kind of lifestyle that I was interested in. And, and then when the great recession hit in 2008, it kind of set a lot of us back a little bit. I owned a mortgage company at the time and a title company. And we had to retool and recalibrate, and a lot of us did, and that was a good opportunity to do that. And that's when uh, properties in, in Arizona got a lot cheaper. And so I recognized that as an opportunity to purchase a few rental properties from 2000, probably nine, 10, to about 2015, 16, when the prices started getting um, a little bit higher, and I had acquired enough, and so, um, that's that's a little bit of my background. I've financed well, most types of businesses you can imagine, manufacturing businesses, financed a number of property management companies, financed some dental practices, some, a lot of commercial buildings, um, self-storage facilities, RV and boat storage facilities. It's, 
actually airplanes and boats and houseboats and almost most kind of lending that you can think of. I've helped underwrite and finance that that type of a um, that type of an asset. And so I have a it's I would call it a community banking background where I was fortunate enough to get involved with a very good community bank that uh, was diverse and really tried to meet the needs of their customers locally in Arizona. So I got to get a, a great variety of businesses that I got to and that's how understand. That's how I met you professionally. Yes. I mean, yep. you knew my wife uh, yep. beforehand, but I went to school with your wife. Yep. So there's yeah. that. There's that. And so <laughs> you were, so that's interesting. I didn't know you were in the mortgage business and had a title company. So many of us reinvented ourselves in 2008, 2009. You've seen it both from the mortgage side and from a private bank side. Yeah. Tell us yeah. about that. Yeah, it's there's a big difference. I mean, if you're working with a mortgage broker, he's going to have typically access to all of the what we would call a standard conforming loan that's underwritten through Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac guidelines. And they're going to have restrictions and it's a pretty formal process of what you have to go through. And a lot of dentists, uh, professionals, um, self-employed individuals, sometimes it's a little bit harder to meet all those qualifications. And or you might get or you hit limits, whether it's a four limit or an eight limit or 10 limit. Those limits have changed on the number of properties you can finance through Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. And so as a, a professional, Dennis, in this case, who we're talking about, there is, in my opinion, great value in having in developing and maintaining a strong relationship with a bank that can provide financing to you for for acquiring assets inquiring in this case like an investment property sometimes you might let's say you've acquired three or four rental properties and you go to the mortgage broker and now the mortgage broker is telling you well because of this you don't qualify anymore or because of a restriction on the number of properties you don't qualify for that anymore um or because you're kind of new to dentistry, you don't qualify. There's a lot of weird things that can kick out, you kick your qualification out in the mortgage broker world. Whereas a private bank is gonna keep that loan on their books. They actually fund it. So you wanna look for a bank that has what we would call a portfolio loan product. And there's a lot of great banks out there. Um, First International was a great one. And there's some really good banks. I work for Western State Bank. They're a great local bank. They have a portfolio product. and But you typically don't find it in the bigger banks. It's usually the the, the smaller, smaller community, regional, regional community, banks. community banks is where you're going to. They seem to, my opinion, care a little bit more about their customers. And so they they like to have those those professionals like dentists that, that bank with them i tell people all the time i recommend a two banking system where you have maybe your convenience type banking with a large institutions like your your three big ones your chase your wells and b of a but then the rest of your banking should be with a bank that can facilitate acquisitions that you can rely on to help you so they're like more a, partner. a partner exactly that you can view view as a partner and so I've been fortunate to work with some really good partner style banks. And as a dentist, if I was starting out, um, or even if I was in the middle of my career, I would absolutely, or any business owner, I would absolutely look for 
a bank that I could consider to be more of a partner. So it's it's having a longer term mindset. What I'm hearing is, and this worked for me in our banking relationship, I, I came to you at a point when my property management company was growing and it was post 2009. I think I had a blemish on my credit, uh, something I think I maybe had uh, to let a, a short sale happen on one of my rental properties. I was able to hold on to most of them, but I did a short sale on one of them. And then your bank actually got me financed to buy an owner-occupied property when I couldn't Correct. qualify for any conform. So conforming loan means it fits in the box of the government underwriting. That's it. Yeah, a mortgage broker is going to package up your package and he's going to sell it off to basically the, a group that packages them and sells them off eventually to Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, and they set, bundle them and package them into, you know, mortgage-backed securities. Has to meet and so fit in the it box. It has to fit into to that box to be part of that securitized debt. And so a, por- a, a community bank, the, a portfolio lender, is actually going to take your loan and bring it in-house and keep it on their books. And so they're going to ask you for yearly financials. They're going to ask you for balance sheet and income statement every year, a personal financial statement. So it's much more of a, it's more of an intimate relationship. So they're not, they're not taking you in, packaging you up and then shipping you off to some large, nameless, faceless servicer. Yeah. They're saying, Hey, we have a relationship with you. Mm -hmm. You couldn't meet some other, you know, we had a product that worked better for your situation and we're going to take the risk and join with you and finance this with you. Uh, but then we're going to stay involved and you're going to keep showing your credit worthiness and that sort of thing. That's exactly it. Yeah. So it was a beautiful relationship I had with your bank and I appreciated it at the time. It was certainly something I needed. Um, tell us, okay, so now you're, you're kind of clarifying this vision of we've got large bank, smaller bank, and mortgage broker. I, if I'm, uh, if, as a realtor, if I put my realtor hat on, my uh, real estate agent hat on, I don't like it when I sell a home. So, so okay, our dentist investor, they wanna go out and buy properties. They need to find someone that will sell them a property. That property is usually listed with a real estate agent, right? Correct. Real estate agents that have been around for a while, like myself, I don't like selling to someone that's got a mortgage or a loan from Chase or Wells Fargo or Bank of America. I actually kind of steer my client away from, uh, you know, advise against that type of a, a financier because those large banks don't care as much. And I and we would miss closing deadlines and there'd be a lot of red tape and yeah. you don't have the motivation level high for the person processing your loan because it's not their livelihood. Maybe they get a little commission on it. So yeah, they're so large. They're so uh, large. They're yep. so, so large. I mean, these are multinational corporations, yep. trillions of dollars and their, their DNA is not to be able deal making to for the small person. Yeah, it's hard to, they just aren't, don't have the DNA to be able to care. Anybody who cares doesn't have power. Interesting. If you think about that for a minute, the people that you're actually talking to do care about you, but they don't have power. They're not empowered by the bank to make any decisions. Small private bank, Small people private you're bank, talking to. Yeah, yeah, as you move down into the bank size, the, the smaller banks tend to empower their employees better. And so if you're talking, that lender really cares and his, and that lender's boss really cares that they're 
taking care of their existing customers, especially if you have a deposit relationship. The whole relationship. If you have a relationship, if you have a true relationship with a bank and your loan isn't closing on time and you call up your customer, your your representative at the bank, and that representative calls their boss, then they have the power to actually maybe move through some of the red tape. Fantastic. You're exactly right. It's that your experience with larger banks is hey, it's hit and miss. Sometimes it goes smooth, sometimes it doesn't. And when it doesn't, it's very difficult to find anybody who either cares or has the power to change or make things happen for you. So an excellent suggestion coming out of this conversation, what I'm hearing is I'm piecing this together. If you own a business, especially a dental practice, for sure. um, you know, be deliberate early on. Don't, don't wait until the need comes. 100%. Deliberately form a partnership relationship with a local regional bank yep where you you maybe move your deposits there you get to know someone like evan on the inside because you do not know three to five years into the future when you're going to have that need that's a non-conforming need right for your business or your real estate investing exactly right yeah you might want to buy you might want to buy an investment home you might you might find one of your associates or somebody you know might have a great opportunity to buy another type of real estate. It might be an office building. It might be something that you can't imagine today, but three years from now, four years from now, that opportunity presents itself. You have your relationship set up. You can go talk to your partner bank. Start building that trusting relationship now. Let's shift a little bit. Tell us a little bit about your landlording experience or you you mentioned that you you saw you saw an example in your family i think a lot of us kind of have those examples like that kind of sparks the idea like oh hey they're doing this and yeah they seem comfortable and that seems kind of cool so tell us about your experience as a landlord maybe a cautionary tale or hey this worked for me this didn't work for me for those listening that might be maybe nervous about becoming a landlord or getting into this asset class sure yeah no um I, th- I think I mentioned my inspiration to be a landlord was, was my grandpa and he had a good lifestyle and I looked at to him as, hey, if I could be half as successful as my grandpa someday, I would feel really lucky. And so he had constructed and built a number of apartment complexes on like Horn and University and Mesa, nice single level garden style apartments. They're really nice. I stayed, I lived in one when I was first married and um so that was my first experience to mow the lawns there. And he had one person there on site that was the manager and they got a free rent or something. So that was his style of management. And then I think my aunt did the books for him and kept books for him. So it was a very family, it was a family affair. And um, so later in life, my, my, my dad ended up owning some properties and he I'm going to give you two contrasting management yeah, styles let's here. Do it. And he kind of tried to do the same thing, but he was in construction and his business was up and down. And so as rental income would come in, he would, he would take that rental income and not necessarily set aside adequate reserves. Mm. And so when a tenant would move out and it needed to be rehabilitated a little bit, he, it was stressful. It was yeah. a it was it was a struggle for him, and so his experience in owning rentals was was rough. So he always counseled me 
against owning rentals. He said, do not own rental properties. They're terrible. And so, and I said, oh, okay, they're terrible. And, but yeah, in the back of my mind, I saw how my grandpa ran things and I had uh, more of a real estate background. I had a real estate license for many years. I understood the legalities of being a landlord. There's a lot of, there's a lot of things, a lot of um, tenant rights. I mean, there's just so many things that as a, a landlord, you need to be careful of that I was aware of. I, and I was eyes wide open. I had a real estate license at the time for about 10 or 12 years. And, and also I recognized in myself that I'm a bit of a people person. And I also had family that needed, uh, needed some properties to live in. And so as I began to acquire, um, I never had an issue of finding, I have, I have over 130 first cousins just as an wow. FYI, just as a background. And then seconds and thirds, it gets kind of silly. So I just have a, I have a kind of a built-in network and I didn't own that many properties. I think I've ended up buying seven properties back. Uh, and so um, for me, it just was a natural thing. And also I was working with property management companies and I had access to their forms and their procedures. And so I consulted with property management companies that I knew about, hey, what are some best practices? What are some things that you do with your deposits, with your, you know, how do you get rid of them? How, you know, if, if you have, a, if you have, you know, there's a lot of things that you need to be aware of as a landlord. And I did that kind of background. I also had a little bit of a flexible work schedule. So for me, in my case, it has worked out to self-manage. And so it's been a decent experience, although, and it's easy when, when the, everything's fine, but when you have to rent up a new property, it's pretty time consuming. Um, but I had time. I had a little bit of a flexible schedule. I could go meet people in the late afternoon after work or Saturdays. And so uh, for me, I'm also very, I grew up in construction. So pretty much nothing from a repair standpoint intimidated me. Nice. And so that wasn't a concern to me. So you were local, you had the time, I had a construction background. You like people. I like people. <laughs> exactly. And so I-, I, I And I, you had a, a network of property management contacts, real estate background, so it made sense. And so and so all of these, I checked all of the, these boxes that are not necessarily easy to check. If you don't have a construction background, if you don't have all the systems and tools that I had and well, just benefits. And so for me, I self-managed. Um, but that's definitely not for everybody. I would say most individuals don't have the real estate expertise, don't don't one don't want to take the time to understand all the complexities that are involved and necessary in properly managing that landlord tenant relationship. 100%. And I, so I can echo that. So I have a property management company with over 600 properties under management now. However, in my first five years as a DIY landlord, I had four or five evictions mm. and I added it up in my head once and I realized that had I paid a property manager, I would have been <laughs> ahead several thousand dollars yeah. you know, in, in lost rent. And, and so even, even with a real estate background and the propensity that I had to, to want to, to do it myself, um, you know, it's if if you have the cross section of all those, the willingness, the time, and all those resources, it can be a good thing. Yeah, and and you don't mind mixing it up a little bit with with tenants. 
because sometimes you have to mix it up a little bit with them. How did you? Okay, here's here's <laughs> here's something I'm curious about because this is one thing that I, I was really hard for me. I consider myself to be a compassionate person. I caution people against self managing because a lot of us are compassionate. And sometimes we, we mix the rules of social relationships in what is a business relationship between a landlord and a resident. Yeah. What do we do in social relationships? We give people a second chance. We give people mm-hmm. the benefit of the doubt. We, you know, you know, give a little fudge, you know, but, yeah. but then when the lines get blurred and they start getting more and more blurry, like, how did you manage that? Did you just tell people like, Oh, I would say that to be, to be, to be straight up i i lost a lot of money i mean i gave away i my inclination in life is just to my grandpa i quote from my grandpa said hey to be a good neighbor it's just going to cost you money sometimes <laughs> so <laughs> you're so, a good, are you a good neighbor to so, your residents so, like is so this I, a- i've always historically been pretty under market and my tenants know it and i chalk it up to hey i don't have i'm not paying a property manager they've been there for a long time and I, it's tough for me. I struggle because I have a direct relationship with them. Right. I struggle to raise them up as quickly as I should. As the market would be. Yeah. I really struggle with that. That's a real, I look back on my life and, 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 and the history of my rental uh, property ownership rental and realize I have left a lot of money on the table. Many thousands. <laughs> many, many, many thousands. <laughs> and so that's just a fault of mine oh, and I, I, i'm okay with I think it it's pervasive i think it's like I, a lot of self-managers it is and 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 so that's been my experience i i've raised but let's say i'm raising five percent where the market's going up 10 or 15 or, or 20, 20 or 20 percent 25 yeah no there, there were years where i yeah. there were years where i raised up five percent and the market went up 20 mm-hmm. but i knew that family was struggling and in my mind if i was just pure business i would have said hey the market's $2,000 a month. I can't charge you $1,400 a month anymore. I need you to get to 2000 Or a month. you need to move somewhere more affordable. Yeah. And, and you That's know. That's a hard thing. It is a tough thing. And so it, it, having that intermediary, which a property management company is, having the intermediary allows you to 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 receive market rent and, and be more professional. And it allows you to maintain a distance and a separation from the tenant that allows market conditions to kind of be what they should be. So again, if if you're going to be a landlord, the chances are self-managed, the chances are you're going to leave some money on the table just because you are just, it's hard. There's a human element that comes. There's a human element. You're a single mom with a, with a child, a teacher, and, and, and market says I could raise her up $200 this year. I know what kind of impact that's going to have on that mother. So yeah. maybe I go up $50. Yep. And there's still a strong case, economic case, just a shrewd business economic case to be made to keeping great paying residents that respect the properties below market rent. I, I, I would say 100%. And yeah. so we do that professionally. But I also hear you like the, the third party property manager has this unique position where they can leverage goodwill. They can maintain goodwill with the resident and still it operate the business kind yeah. of in an optimal manner. And anyway. so, yeah. I know I'm just pumping up your business. Oh, no, 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 no. That's just my experience. <laughs> what I wanted but, to do is like contrast, like for those listening, like just 
proceed with caution. Like if you want to do this yourself, you want to do DIY landlord, that's what I did. I paid the price. There's some people that can probably do it a lot better than I can. But yeah, I want them to know the pros and cons. Yeah. And so, yeah, there's pros and cons. You will probably have a hard time raising rents to market. Um, I was just really, my one thing I did right was I was really, really picky on on my tenants. I just, my main concern was that they didn't trash the property. Yeah. If they could answer that question and then financial capacity, I yep. didn't want it to be a burden. Yeah. Um, so I, I was a little bit careful on that. So I, I've had pretty good luck on the dealing with some mostly good folks. I had one interesting situation, but we don't need to worry about that. So. <laughs> so lessons you've learned from being a landlord and doing your, doing it yourself, some insights from the private banking world. Um, do you have anything to share uh, just kind of globally about people that are embarking in this real estate investment uh, adventure yeah. or, yeah. I would say that from a, from a dental perspective, a dentist perspective, and even the perspective that I began to gain as I, as I got, as I saw this process happening and play out, I began to recognize something in, in what I was witnessing as a banker. I was, I became, I had a first row view, inside view, peek behind the curtain, if you will, at um, a, a fairly significant amount of wealth that was being created. And that wealth was based on the thesis of acquiring as much positively cash flowing property as you could and holding it over a period of time. That was the thesis. And I saw that these folks that would come in, these good business owners and investors that would come talk to me, some of them had amassed 10 million, 20 million, 50 million, $100 million worth of property over their lifetime. And they had just systematically done it. Most of them had not been born into it. They had just um, made a decision to acquire positively cash flowing real estate of various shapes and sizes. And their genius wasn't anything astronomical or life changing. It was just they had made the choice to do it and, and put themselves in the position to do it taken a little bit of risk and saved up enough for an ec the equity requirements to take control again of positively cash flowing real estate and holding it over a period of time. In my opinion, it's one of the greatest ways to create a positive net worth in this life. And uh, any dentist that isn't doing it should consider doing it because it's a great diversification to the to the good strong income that they have and that's one thing i would mention to a dentist is that you have your prime earning years and during those prime earning years you're very financeable everybody wants to lend money to you and so those are the years to start accumulating diversified assets you certainly want some assets in the market in in you know enlisted securities be be careful <laughs> doing outside investments, you know, silver mines or whatever, oil mines or whatever, uh, interesting investment. Stick with the, the listed securities with registered brokers for some peace of mind. That's a great way, you know, the retirement, all the fancy retirement accounts that dentists can set up for their practices. That's a great source of wealth creation and diversified and really important. Um, my opinion 
is that real estate is also can be another uh, important and strong uh, driver of, of growth of your net worth, mainly because of leverage. And, and, you know, you, for those who have looked at leverage, you can sometimes put 20% down, sometimes less even on an investment properties, maybe even 10% down. If you have the right programs, there are some really good programs for Dennis. Um, and that power of a, of an asset that's even if you put, let's say you put 10% down or 20% down, but a, a $500,000 or $400,000 property, or even a million dollar property that's appreciating at five, even just 5% a year, that 5% against the 10% or the 20% over time, year, year after year after year, uh, combined with principal pay down, combined with um, depreciation uh, benefits on your tax returns, combined with other deductions you can make on your tax returns really is a powerful driver. And you, what you start seeing is the value of, the, of your loan, the, the debt going down, the appreciation going up, and, and within there is, is positive cash flow that also hopefully, also increasing. Also hopefully is growing yeah. as well. And so you've got this divergent at one point in time where you're kind of break even on that property and it just over time just separates. And 10 years down the road, you look around going, man, I... I paid a hundred thousand dollars for that house, and now it's worth four hundred thousand. When people come in and uh, new clients, they come in and we meet about investing in real estate. They're new landlords. Um, sometimes, I'll, well, often I'll say, "There's not a lot of secret sauce here. I could take a dart, throw it at a map of Phoenix by the closest property, and fast forward twenty years, and as long as I kept holding on to it, had effective management." I'm going to look like a genius. Yeah, you want to maintain, you know, try to avoid uh, deferred maintenance on the property and quality tenant selection. Yeah. Get a quality tenant. Uh, like you've, I think you've mentioned it a little bit. The quality of the tenant is so critical, even more so than maximizing your dollar. That one hundred percent. The quality it, drives everything. It's a long term mindset. If you have a good tenant, your life is good. Yep. If you don't, it can be a challenge. Yep. Um, and so, yeah, that driver, it's also rent is one of those, you, you've heard the term an inflation protected cash flow. Yeah, that's rent, right. Rent is, is in my opinion, a, a good hedge against inflation and um, better than, you know, a lot of people like silver and gold. I, I kind of like rent because I can use it. <laughs> I can, it's cash flow to next, next month. The first of the month rolls around and I, it's a good time. You know, you get that nice cash flow every month and it's, it's, it's really, and wall street has recognized it now as a very desirable cash flow. Yeah. And so our, the challenge that last five to 10 years, right? Yeah. They started back in probably 2011, 12, 12 yeah. started acquiring uh, at, at scale in all, all the major metro markets, especially large, what we're talking about is large REITs, large hedge, hedge funds, financial yeah. institutions at scale, not just buying multifamily assets, but buying single. thousands of single family homes throughout the US. Yeah, and that's really, in my opinion, changed the dynamic a lot. And I, I believe long term, the dynamic is, is it'll never be the same. I think now that that asset class has been recognized and focused in on and narrowed in on and performed well for them, <laughs> I don't like it, but um, 
You don't, I don't like what? I don't like that they that they that they've come they've in they've to come in and take the lunch of the small investor. That they've made it more <laughs> difficult for the average uh, mom and pop operator to acquire properties because they're they, competing. That they've made it more difficult for the starter home buyers, my children, your children, because they've bid up the price. Now they now they're competing directly. Now now as an individual, you got to compete against Wall Street for a, an entry level home or a medium or a second move up home, and that that is. In a free market, I don't know what the solution is. Some people have come up with all kinds of solutions. I'm not super political on that issue, but I am very grateful that I acquired the rental homes before that, I, that time that I did. But but I will say, in my opinion, the Wall Street firms that are buying up our our in private equity companies, I don't think they're going away. I think they will continue to go after this cash flow. They their investors who have invested in their funds like the monthly cash flow, the appreciation. Yeah. And therefore, I, I think, like you said, I think you, we can all look and say, Hey, they're going to keep buying properties. People need to keep living in the homes. Um, this asset class is likely to continue to move, move up in yeah. the future. I think it's a huge, it's been a huge blessing for me, for my family. I think the, I love what you shared, Evan, about how just kind of uh, a lot of your comments. Uh, support this idea of winning over the long run. Um, if you know, if we can get into the asset class and not burn out or flame out, get great residents in the property, have an effective management approach, be able to stay in it. The compounding effect of staying in it for decades. Yeah. Think about think about real estate investing in terms of decades. Yeah. Instead of years, mm-hmm. and then uh, you know, one day you wake up. I know this might sound trite, but you wake up, 20 years has gone by. <laughs> You've got no debt on the on the property and the cash is doubled and the value is doubled or tripled. And then you're thinking, wow, that, that really worked out nice. It's also kind of an interesting, I mean, for me, I, I considered it a nice, it's just an option. It gives you some options. Uh, I have kids and now my kids have, are, are benefiting um, from that decision to acquire the, the rental properties back in the day. Um, so it, it, there's just, it's just a unique asset class like that. It has, has lots of different interesting oh. benefits to it. My phone's going off. Sorry. So yeah, it's, cut that out. <laughs> it is. And I agree with you. It's, this is not a get rich quick scheme. This is nope. not, it's the opposite of that. It's a, a long-term hold. And you know, there's, there's house rehabilitators and resellers and house flippers out there that are trying to, they're, you know, they're trying to get, you make quick money on homes. I really, that's not that, what you did. That's not what I did. That was never, for me, it was always the, the long-term hold, make sure I had a positive cash flow on it. And sometimes as a dentist or an investor, you, you might look at a property and say, I really like that property, but it's a little bit expensive. And so my cash flows aren't great. Sometimes it's appropriate. And we shouldn't shy away from coming in with a little more equity sometimes to make sure it has a positive. Either more equity or if you have a really high risk profile, I think back to not that anybody should take lessons from me in my 20s, but the some of the first rental properties I bought in my 20s, I was a little negative cash flow on Mm -hmm. and I had the disposable income to supplement. And when I look back, 
I'm super glad that I was negative cash flow two hundred dollars a month for a few years, mm-hmm. and then I got to break even. And then, and then it's not for everybody. You have to have staying power. You have to know what your risk tolerance is. You have to make sure yeah. that you don't compromise and risk your investment to a cash flow crunch where you could lose it all. We saw plenty of people go through that post 2009 with mass foreclosures. Yeah. Um, so be cognizant and aware of that. But for me, I, I put myself on 15 year fixed mortgages on a couple of my rental properties. I was definitely negative cash flow, but that principal pay down was happening very rapidly. Yeah, it's very satisfying. And I could afford it. And I was like, and I got a better interest rate. Mm-hmm. And so that worked for me and my emotional tolerance at the time. Mm-hmm. And so and then you probably were able to rise the rent up to yep. pretty soon you were break even and then you were positive a little Absolutely. bit even on a 15 year the first year performance if you get yourself into a fixed interest rate product financing the first year performance is usually going to be your worst and then it just starts mm-hmm. opening and up you over get a little time. separation yeah and it's nice and yeah it, it really is a unique thing and dentists particularly have typically pretty good incomes pretty stable pretty steady if they're if they're taking really good, if they take really good care of their customers, they'll have more business than they know what to do with. That's my experience with Dennis. Yeah, nice. Evan, it's been such a pleasure. Thank you for being here. Thanks for sharing your experience as a landlord, your experience from different, wearing different hats in your finance career journey. Uh, it's been, I'm, I'm sure our listeners will really benefit from your experience. And I really appreciate it. Anytime. Good luck to all you Dennis out there. Thanks again for joining us on this episode of Dental to Rental. Be sure to hit that subscribe button so you never miss an episode.